0: Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, August 15th, 2021. Today, Rod Happel preaches the fifth message in our summer sermon series entitled Faith in Action Lessons Learned from Old Testament Saints. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Have you ever said to yourself, That person is beyond hope? Or maybe you've actually had that thought about yourself. You know, we think these things sometimes because we've seen situations in life where the person doesn't turn things around, and so we just kind of get this negative attitude. You know, a person makes one bad decision after another, and they don't learn from their mistakes, and before you know it, it goes from bad to worse, and at times, they absolutely ruin their lives. You know, I hate talking like this, but the truth is that our thinking can become very jaded. Uh, We have a sense of hopelessness about people, about life, about ourselves. But the message that I want to share with you today is one that is filled with hope. It's a redemptive story. And it's one where it tells us that no one is a lost cause and it's not too late. Now I love hearing stories about how people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, Often you'll hear about a person who's been living a life of sin and uh, lots of destructive kind of habits. And they have this moment where they come and they meet Jesus and there's an inner change in them. There's a transformation that takes place. They have a new outlook on life because of the aha moment of meeting Jesus Christ, who has forgiven them of their sins and has given them a new lease on life. But I can guarantee you this. Nothing in that person's life is going to change if they don't act on what they know about Jesus. they It's not the talking about their change life. It's not the articulating of what they believe. It's the acting upon what you know to be true about Christ that changes your life. Now, faith in action produces this kind of change, and that's what uh, James chapter 2 really emphasizes, that it's not just something we say with our mouths, but it's something we live out. And so James 2 says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And then he goes on to say, by faith, uh, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The point that James is making is that if people just say, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I believe, but there's no changed life, he's questioning, really? There's no action that follows the faith? Then where is the truth of this? And the point that I'm picking up on here today is that you can't separate the two. That faith leads to action. And that's what our sermon series is all about. Faith in action. Now when we started into this sermon series where we looked, Or have been looking at Old Testament saints. They were commended for something in Hebrews chapter 11. They were noted for something that they did. They acted on something that they knew about God. Or they acted on something that they believed about God. Or they acted on something that they were asked to do by God. But the whole point is that they did it. They acted on it. So Noah was told to build a boat. And he didn't know why. But he built the boat. Abraham was told to take his son and sacrifice it on Mount Moriah. He didn't know why. Fortunately, God intervened in that situation. He didn't have to. God provided a substitute ram. But he believed God, and he demonstrated it through his action. Joseph, interestingly enough, a couple of weeks ago, when Richard, our youth director, was preaching on Joseph, he mentioned the fact that his act of faith was that before leaving uh, pardon me, before dying, he said to the nation of Israel, one day God's going to rescue you and make sure I make you swear an oath to me that you will make sure that my bones go from Egypt into the land that was promised my great-grandfather, Abraham. So last week, when we looked at Moses' story in Exodus thirteen nineteen, it actually says this. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. So Joseph um, had demonstrated his faith in God by simply saying, I believe the promise to Abraham, my great-grandfather. Therefore, when it comes time that God rescues us, take my bones. So each of these people did something. Something about what they knew. Something about what they believed. Something about what they were asked by God. And that's what faith in action is. Your life will not change until you act on what you know about God. The principle is still the same. Now the reason why I put it like this is because today's story about the character that we're looking at, who happens to be a woman named Rahab, is all about the fact that she acted on what she knew about God, even though what she knew about God was quite limited. It wasn't because she knew everything about God that God honored her faith. It's that she acted on what she knew about God, and God honored that demonstration of faith. So this is how it's put in Hebrews. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Or in some translations, those who un- were unbelieving. So here's the context for that phrase. That story goes like this. Rahab lived in Jericho at the time of Joshua, when the nation of Israel was going to go into the land of Canaan and conquer it. You might remember that song, Josh fought the battle of Jericho, 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 and the walls came tumbling down. That Joshua, that Jericho, that's where Rahab lived. Now, the story is recorded for us in Joshua 1 and 2. Uh, Moses has died at this point. God has now instated uh, Joshua to be the next leader of the nation of Israel. You might remember that Joshua had been the assistant to Moses. Or Moses, for 40 years as they went through that desert. And now he is going to lead the nation of Israel across the Jordan River, heading west, into the Promised Land. But first, he sends in two spies to go check out the city. So let's pick it up in Joshua 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent out two spies from Shittim. I don't know what to say about some of the biblical names, you know. Just, it is what it is, right? Joshua... Sends the spies out. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now the king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not not know where they had come from. Uh, At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. She's just completely lying, bold-faced lying, deceiving them, right? But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as their pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Now before the, spies, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard now, or we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you uh, when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives. The men assured her, if you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of of the city wall. So this is quite an interesting story, right? Uh, There's a lot of questions that we have about this story. We might wonder like, why did the spies go to the house of a prostitute? That was one of the questions I had right off the bat. And why did Rahab actually risk taking them in? And why does it seem that God honors the lies that she spoke? And why does the Bible here always say Rahab the prostitute, as if it's like her last name? Why doesn't it use that for other people like, you know, Noah the drunkard or Abraham the polygamist or Jacob the deceiver? Well, actually, it does say Jacob was the deceiver. Um, Or or David the adulterer. Why doesn't it have like a tagline for these other ones when it has it for Rahab? Are they just picking on Rahab here? We're going to get to that because I think it's very significant that it's mentioned what her occupation was. But let's start with what Rahab was commended for. So in Hebrews chapter 11, it says she was saved because she welcomed in the spies. So why did she welcome them in? And at the same time, we might wonder, why did the two spies go to the house of this prostitute? Well, I don't believe it was for her services that they went there. I think more likely the answer is that it was a strategic hiding place. Um, As spies, uh, it provided a pretty good cover. Uh, People who are at the house of a prostitute don't ask a lot of questions of each other. Plus, her house was strategically located. It says that it was built in the wall. So you have this wall around Jericho, and you have houses that are built right into the wall. And of course, that became significant at the point of um, having to rescue both the spies and Rahab because it was uh, an escape route. Out the window, down the wall, and off they went. But what also seems evident to me here is simply that God's hand was in all of this. His hand was in This, for the saving of the lives of the spies, to carry out the promise that he had given to Israel, to save the life of Rahab and her family, and ultimately, for God's greater plan of salvation, because eventually, from from the line of Rahab, would come the savior of the world. And we're going to get into that a bit later. So, why did Rahab welcome them in? Well, I think there was a couple of things here. One, she heard things, and she knew things from what she heard. So what did she hear? Uh, One, she'd heard... That their God had rescued them from Egypt, brought them out on dry ground through the Red Sea, and then drowned the army of Egypt. She was familiar with that story. Their people knew it. And they knew that Egypt was a world power. Probably at that time, the greatest army in the world, and and destroyed. So that's noteworthy that their God had done that. And then she picks up on the second thing, which is that their God of the Israelites had given victory over these two kings of the Amorites. And the Amorites were just on the other side of the Jordan River. Um, they, were, they were bad people. They were like baddest of the bad kind of a thing. Probably as bad as the Canaanites. But nonetheless, they knew that God had given victory to the Israelites over those people. And again, signifying the power of God. So Rahab at this point has heard these details. And she's starting to be impressed by the God of Israel. And she's putting something together. So what did she know from this? Well, she knew that God was going to give the Israelites this land. She also knew that the people of Jericho, Jericho were afraid of the Israelites. And she also knew that their God, and this is, I think, very profound, their God was the God. Not just one of many gods, as would have been, um, you know, the pluralistic God system of the time in which she was living and the place in which she was living. There were many gods that they would have worshipped. But in this case, she makes a very profound statement that the God of Israel was greater than any of these gods of the Canaanites. He was alive, he was active, and uh, he was engaged in saving his people. So, Rahab knew that much. But if we think about it, she didn't know that much about God. But she knew enough, and she acted on it. And God honored her faith. Our faith, faith is our belief in God, but it's also our willingness to risk something because of that faith. And what Rahab was willing to risk was her very life. And she risked it because she had to choose between two fears. Will she fear God of the Israelites that she's just heard all this about? Or will she fear her own people who are coming here now to ask for those spies? And she has to make a decision. And it's for that act of faith that she chose to hide the spies that she ends up in the hall of faith. Alongside all the rest of these great people who are esteemed for their faith is Rahab the prostitute. Now James chapter 2 commends her similarly as Hebrews. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And so James is using Rahab as an example of the fact that your faith has to produce action. And and you know, Rahab only knew so much about God, but she acted on that. And I think there's a message there for us. Rahab, the prostitute, is in the hall of faith because she acted on what she knew about God. She risked her life, and for that, she's commended. But we might wonder about the lying part. Like, is not lying wrong? Always? That kind of a situation? And why does it seem here that God honors her lie? Well, I don't have a definitive answer on this, but I think there's two ways you can look at it. One way, you could say, yes, lying is wrong. Uh, She's not commended for her lying. She's commended for taking in the spies. That's what Scripture says. But I don't know if that's actually the right answer to this text. Um, It was wartime, and in wartime there are competing moral values where you have to choose the higher Moral value over the lesser. Uh, We have seen that, of course, in recent history with Nazi Germany and um, uh, people who hid Jewish people so that their lives could be spared. They would lie about that. That yes, they were in their home, but it was to save the lives of the Jews. And I think we have a similar principle here that the higher moral value in this particular case was saving the lives of the spies instead of turning them over to be killed. I mean, even if you think about what the nature of spying is, it's deceitful, right? I mean, They're going in undercover, pretending to do what? So they're deceiving. I mean, that's what lying ultimately is. So what I think I see here is that we have Rahab, who is a resourceful person who is uh, well aware of the greater good in this particular case. But what about her name? Uh, Rahab the prostitute. Uh, Her name actually is is like a nickname. It's uh, a name that's indicative of the occupation she has and the reputation that goes with it. Uh, so it's not a flattering name, it's quite negative. But why is it prominently noted in the Bible could be our question? Like why why not just say Rahab then? Why say Rahab the prostitute? Cuz it kind of jumps off the pages of scripture, right? I mean, we wouldn't think anything of it if it said Rahab the school teacher took in these two young spies. By the way, she's not an innkeeper. Um, there's been some kind of uh, massaging of the text that maybe this was like a youth hostile and she was taking in these these spies. Uh, Some have suggested that. But that detracts completely from what seems to be the obvious point as to why the New Testament picks up on the fact that she's a prostitute. They're trying to highlight the occupation intentionally because they want to highlight the grace of God. They want to show that God's grace is completely sufficient when someone puts their trust and faith in him no matter who they are, what their past is, what they have done, when a person truly turns to God, God takes them. And that's what's so amazing about grace. That's what's so amazing about God. This is a redemptive story that highlights that God is a redemptive God. And that we are not beyond hope. We are not a lost cause. This story isn't about a a story of a woman who deserves to be saved, right? I mean, the story is about a woman who obviously didn't didn't merit being saved. There wasn't anything about her that would make you say, "Oh, she's a good person. She needs to be saved." No. She's credited for her faith because she believed God and acted on it and she hid the spies and for that her life was saved. You know, she cuts a deal with them. She says to them, "Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family. Our lives for your lives." For that act of faith, she is commended. And she is remembered by both the author of Hebrews and James. You got to know this, that any first century person that's reading James or reading Hebrews comes across Rahab and her occupation is going to stumble at that point. Uh, They will stumble because, first of all, she's a Gentile. They will stumble because she's a woman. And at the time of this, women were not considered Um, as important as men. They were considered second-class citizens. And thirdly, she was a prostitute. So three strikes against this woman. And yet here she is being commended for her faith alongside all the other greats that are mentioned in the hall of faith. You know, we need to just stop for a moment and realize that all those other greats who are in the hall of faith, all of them needed to be saved by the same grace-filled redemptive God that Rahab was. They needed it as much as she did. And I believe we need to hear that this morning too. God is a God of grace, and he honors the heart that turns to him and trusts in him, no matter what your background. It it doesn't end there in the story of Rahab. I mentioned that her name comes up in Hebrews, and her name comes up in James, but it comes up another place. It comes up in the very first chapter of the very first book in the New Testament. Jesus is in the lineage of Rahab. Or Rahab is in the lineage of Jesus. Jesus is a, de- a descendant of Rahab the prostitute. Jesus, the son of God, born of the Virgin Mary. Yes, that one. Jesus had a great, 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 so on and so forth, grandmother, who was a prostitute. And yet here her name is recorded right in there. Uh, Matthew 1 says... Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. King David, that was of the lineage of King David would come Jesus, right? The Messiah. And somehow God sees this to be so important that he keeps it in his book. He doesn't remove the name Rahab from that genealogy. He includes her name in his son's genealogy rather than skipping over it because he's making a statement. He's making a statement about his own grace. Rahab's life stands as an act of God's grace as much as mine and yours. That's why the New Testament writers don't leave out Rahab's occupation because it shouts God's redemption. It shouts, God's grace that is sufficient for anyone, that is sufficient for all of us. So the question I have, if we look at that, is is there something in my past that's holding me back from embracing God's grace in my life today? And and if so, is it that I view my past in such a way that I don't embrace the faith in God to act upon it? What is in your past that prevents you from stepping out and living for God? Because your life won't change until you act on your faith. Let's look again at the story to see how it wraps up. And so Joshua chapter 6 picks up on how the story goes. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in or out. uh, Pardon me, no one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of rams, horns, in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the end, pardon me, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house, and bring her out, and all who belong to her, in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to them, to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. She lives among the Israelites to this day. It's very interesting, right? I mean, Rahab ends up settling into the life of Israel. And eventually, she meets a man named Salmon, and they get married, and they have children. Rahab knew very little about the God of Israel at the time of her acting upon what she knew. Um, The starting point of her redemptive story was one act of faith, which obviously led to more acts of faith. But at the time of her trusting in God. She didn't know about God's holiness. She didn't know about the law of Moses. She didn't know about what it meant to live obediently to this God. She didn't know any of that when she said yes to believing in God by hiding the spies that then God saved her life. Now, I think that this is how salvation works for us as well. Um, we don't know everything about god when we come to that place of trusting in him usually there's two things we know one we know we're a sinner and two we know that jesus is the savior and that's about it it's only after trusting in jesus that we begin to fill in those blanks in life it's after trusting in jesus that we learn to grow and grow up in our faith of what it means to walk obediently with him but here's what i wonder about those of us who are christians we know a whole lot more about this God of the Bible than what Rahab did. And yet I'm wondering if we are acting upon it or if we're kind of holding back. We're kind of holding God hostage because we want something more from him before we're willing to act on this faith that we know. So maybe we're thinking something like, God, I just need you to show me a bit more of yourself and then I'll act. Or God, I just need a little more evidence before I'll actually risk My life to trust in you. God, I just need a few more of my questions answered before I'll actually share you with anyone else. Because I'm scared to share you with others when I still have questions myself. How much more do we need to know in order to share God with those around us? Or maybe it's theologically speaking, I, I just need to work out my theology a little bit more and then I'll serve you with my life. I'm still working on my theology. So... What is holding you back today from acting on your faith in God? You know, it could be like the story of Rahab. It could be your past. It could be that there's something there that you think, there's no way I could be forgiven for that. There's no way that I could then overcome whatever it is that is the challenge in your life. There's no way that I will ever change. I'm a lost cause. It's too late for me. That kind of thinking. But the story of Rahab is all about the fact that God's grace transforms lives that god transforms us from the inside out he takes a pagan woman who sells her body for money and she and he transforms her into a believer in god who's led to a man named salmon who then bore a child who bore a child that ends up bearing the son of god jesus christ who is the savior of the world i mean that just sounds pretty transformative and redemptive and that same transformative redemptive god wants to work in all of us. And who are we to tell this God, this God of the universe who can do all of that? Who are we to tell him? No, you can't. You can't work that way in me. Yes, God can, and he will. The God of the universe is the one who takes broken lives and heals them. But it takes faith in action. Nothing in your life will change if you don't act on what you know to be true about God. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 said this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. I've highlighted, I've bolded this part. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, of whom I am the worst. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He is still doing today for any person who will trust in him what he did for Rahab. Your first step is to trust in Jesus to save you. Right now, right where you are, Wherever you're at in life. But the second step is an act of faith that says, I will put into action that which I know to be true about Christ, each and every day, step by step, saying yes to Him, and He transforms our lives. So I want to challenge you. Are we making excuses? Are we waiting on God to do something more before I am willing to act on what I know? I want to challenge us to begin living out our faith live it out with those in our homes, live it out with those in our lives around us, wherever we might be, and let's see God do amazing, wonderful, powerful, and transformative things as we act in faith. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is a big, bold message here today. It is an amazing testimony of your grace, which is sufficient for any one of us, It is an amazing message about the fact that you can take our lives and turn them into good. That you can weave together the story of our life which is so filled with brokenness and hurt and sin. We can be forgiven, we can be cleansed and you transform us from the inside out. Lord, may we just not hold you hostage by not allowing you to work in our lives because we're still waiting. But may we today act on what we know to be true about you. And in faith, might we see the reward for that. So may we learn from Rahab's life today and the fact that you so regarded her as one of your children, that you too regard us as your children and that we would walk faithfully with you. Give us that power, I pray, by your Holy Spirit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.